Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. This is AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books Podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Uh, Today, I'm so excited to be talking to Karen Baum-Gordon about her new book, The Last Letter, A Father's Struggle, A Daughter's Quest, and the Long Shadow of the Holocaust. Uh, Karen is a graduate of Harvard College and Columbia Business School, and she co-founded Strategic Horizons, an executive coaching and management consulting firm. Karen is a Dallas native, and now she lives with her husband in Black Lab in Brooklyn, New York, and South Hero, Vermont. She's an active member of Brooklyn Heights Synagogue and recently served as president of the congregation. Uh, Karen, how are you today? I'm very well. Thank you, AJ. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for for being on the show. I really enjoyed your book. Really enjoyed it a lot. It really moved me, and and your father's story and and your family's story. Uh, it was it was really incredible. And your story researching the book. So maybe if if you could just start off real quick. Um, so your 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 book is framed around a, a series of of letters written by your your grandparents and your father. And it's it's really your your journey to understand your father's life, and and what led him to attempt suicide actually in his his eighties. So maybe we can just actually start off with that that late in life suicide attempt um, to give a little context to this journey. So yes, my dad at the age of eighty six attempted to take his own life uh, after writing a note that said, I am a tortured soul. And really the uh, genesis of the book was my solving a mystery, which was that mystery. What drove him to say, I am a tortured soul and to make that attempt. He was the most extroverted in the world kind of guy. So it came seemingly out of nowhere. And my dad had come to this country at the age of uh, 21 from Frankfurt, Germany, leaving behind his parents. His sister had emigrated to Palestine and he became a uh, part of the American army and then a naturalized citizen and then went back to participate in the liberation of Buchenwald. But it was years later that he wrote this note and and my mission really was to, to understand what was that tortured soul. So I didn't set out to write a book. I set out to solve a mystery. Well, so, so then when your, your father attempted to, to take his, his own life, what, so you, you, and you talk about this a little bit later in the book, that maybe there were some, some small signs of, of, of depression, but you were, you were pretty, taken aback. Uh, you were pretty shocked uh, at, at the incident. How, how long did it take for you to connect the dots with, with his life and what happened to his family and, and his experiences? How long did that take for you? I would say it was about the, the connecting the dots was maybe a year-ish. The writing was more like five years um, but connecting the dots was about a year. You know, he had had, yes, he had had two previous uh, incidents of depression. And 
you would say, well, of course, you know, one was he got fired from a job when he was in his fifties uh, and had three kids. He still had to put through college and he went into a depression then. Um, but you could write it off as understandable. Um, another time was when he had triple bypass surgery. And as we know, many people um, after that surgery go into depression do largely to sort of your own brushes with your own mortality. So again, understandable. But when this one happened, this one was really um, so different. And, uh, you know, he almost created his own private gas chamber, really, uh, in the garage. So, and his mom had committed suicide in the ghetto uh, on the day she found out that they were going to be taken to Auschwitz. So there was a history there. There was a connection there. And I started the journey by having these 88 letters professionally translated, letters written by his parents from Germany to him on a weekly basis when he was here. Um, And that really started to unlock uh, some of the mystery as well as a very dear friend of his who said, I think it's the Holocaust. That's what was at the root of it. That's what I remember reading that in your book. And I was, uh, I could almost feel like the, the dots connecting in your mind in, in that passage. Well, let's, let's then let's, let's retrace the story of, of your family. Let's start um, at the beginning then in Frankfurt, Germany, um, where your, your grandparents lived um, and your, where your father grew up. Um, tell us about their life. You know, what kind of people were they? How did they make a living? What, what was life like? So they were what we would call sort of middle upper class uh, family, uh, Jewish in that my grandmother was the uh, great uh, niece of a founder of Reform Judaism. So she was what we call Reform. My grandfather had grown up um, Orthodox in a town outside of Frankfurt. He sold uh, tailor supplies and he traveled on the road to various customers to do so. They lived in a beautiful, um, you know, what we would call attached houses or brownstones is what we call them here in New York. And they lived on uh, a couple of floors in this apartment building. And they had, quote unquote, you know, a good life. My dad went to a good school. They call it a gymnasium. Uh, He went to the Musterschule. My aunt went to a very good girl's school. Life was good. They went to concerts. They went out. And you, so your your family is... um, Jewish family, of course, you write several times that, and this is uh, a common, uh, this is a common thing, but you write, you write several times that they considered themselves Germans first and and Jewish second, right? Exactly, AJ. In fact, my father's voice for many years was at the Museum of Jewish Heritage here in New York, saying those words over in a sound and light show. Um, And he used to recount that. They felt they were Germans first because why? My grandfather had fought in World War I. He was a good German. And when Hitler was coming to power and the signs of anti-Semitism, they were like, "Mm, this is going to pass. And we're older. They're not going to bother with us. We're good Germans. And it wasn't until obviously 1936, when my dad came here, that they finally said, gee, maybe maybe you should go. My aunt had already gone to Palestine. Uh, she had always wanted to go to Palestine. She had a boyfriend who was Zionist. So she had already left in 34. And they thought, well, you're younger. My father, you should go. And they worked very hard to get him an affidavit to come over. And yeah, and you're so you're in 1936 is when your your father comes to to America, and this is something I thought was was striking is that they were so your grandparents were so supportive of uh, him him leaving and going to America, yet they themselves 
in in their letters, especially your grandmother's letters, just very very much the feeling that they're not they weren't worried about the situation in in Germany. I wonder how did your so your father comes to America? How did he feel about so he grew up in Frankfurt, had somewhat of an enjoyable upbringing, as far as I could tell. Um, how did he feel about being in America while in the the late 1930s his parents were still in Germany? I think he must have been terrified. You know, he landed here with a Leica camera. And that was about it. And a a trunk full of some clothing, including a tuxedo, just in case he needed it. Didn't speak great English, had been taking some English lessons and really had to make it on his own and was using connections of connections of connections to get a job, to find an apartment. He ended up sharing an apartment on the Upper West Side with somebody else from Frankfurt he ended up getting a job as a stock boy in a in a shoe company. He spent his career in shoes. Meanwhile, his parents were saying, anything happens, we'll take the last train out. And my father has said he he had a sinking feeling when he said goodbye on that train platform that he would not see them again. And in their letters, so we have to remember that the letters, so these letters were written from November 1936, weekly, until July of 1938. Then there's an inexplicable three and a half year gap in the letters. I just don't have them. Uh, I have a theory about that, which I'll mention in a moment. And then there is, quote, the last letter written the four or five days before they were deported from Frankfurt to the ghetto in Poland. And those letters, every letter was censored. So you really had to read between the lines. So my grandmother would say things like, yes, we celebrated the chancellor being um, installed tonight by going to the movies and had a good laugh. So you really had to get the nuance of what she was saying. But you're absolutely right. For three and a half years, at best, there was ambivalence about leaving. But otherwise, there was, you know, this is what I made for dinner, and this is where I'm going, and this is what who I saw and who I ran into. The last letter is desperate. And my theory is that there's three and a half years worth of letters missing. I believe they must have been cries of desperation. I know they existed because my father in some writing referred to letters of the 40s. So I know they existed and I think they must have become desperate. And then it was too late. And this is the, in your book, uh, this is the letter that's written on a typewriter. Is that correct? The last letter was written on a typewriter. Yeah, I read that several times. It really stuck out to me. Um, And it it really, it really moved me. I'm getting, I'm kind of getting goosebumps thinking about it right now. Well, let's, before we get to that, let's talk a little bit more about the situation in, in Frankfurt, maybe from 1936 to 1938, because that's, those are the majority of, of the letters that, that you had. Tell us a little bit about the, um, the Jewish community in Frankfurt. What were the types of uh, challenges in, in 1936 leading up to 1938? What were the, the types of challenges they faced and, and how did those challenges progressively get worse? So, you know, it was an insidious chipping away, AJ. That's what it was. So it was, gee, we can now walk through the park, but we can't sit on the park benches. We can shop, but we can shop only on certain days. We can shop only on certain days and only buy certain foods. I mean, that's what was happening. Now, my grandmother didn't write that because, again, the letters were censored. However, I did the research of, you know, seeing what the history was that they were living in, and that's what they were living in. They they loved going to concerts, and they were very cultured, and it became, there became a time when they could only go to concerts performed by Jewish musicians, 
And then it became, they couldn't go to any concerts. They could only go to doctors who were Jewish. And then it was, you couldn't go to any doctors. So it was a chipping away. And for my grandparents, they lived in this lovely home, which I have seen. And then they were forced to leave that. I, I believe they were evicted and went to another residence. I've been in all of their residences, actually, uh, except one, the last one that was bombed out. So they had to move twice. They moved to another residence. And then they had to move again. And this was all uh, between 1937 and 1938. So in 1938, they moved yet again. And they had to take in a border because to make ends meet. And that wasn't unusual. So imagine this sort of what I would call a proper couple. And now they had to have somebody living. It wasn't a separate apartment. They were living in a room in their house. I got from from reading from reading the letters, I got the feeling that, that your grandparents were very cultured people. They enjoyed art, classical music. Um, your grandma in, in particular, she like the way she writes is like, she writes very eloquently. Uh, she's a good writer. So then I guess talk about then this this gap after 1938 where there aren't really any letters. Talk about your your grandparents' life in Frankfurt and, and what you believe through your research, what, what you believe to be going on. So from what I, I learned, um, again, their lives became smaller and smaller and more and more restricted. They couldn't go out. There were curfews. Their community became the people in their building, which was, you know, three floors. The last place they lived, it was three floors. Interestingly, each of the three floors had had a couple who had a son who was in America. Kind of unbelievable. And they would wait for the letters from America. I mean, their lives revolved around that their connection to the outside world became their radios. Um, my father and his sister for the 25th anniversary of my grandparents sent them a radio. I think it was in 1936 or 37. And that was such a great gift. My grandmother writes about it, but in, in the late thirties, I can't remember which year it was. It might've been 1940 even. They had to, turn in their radios. Everybody had to give up their radio and they had to stand in line. And what day did they have to do that? On Yom Kippur, which is one of the most uh, hallowed and and, um, important Jewish holidays. That day, they were forced not to go to synagogue, but to stand in line to turn in their radio. So there were such... um, powerful ways that they were tortured emotionally before the physical aspects uh, started. Yeah. And uh, all the while, um, so you so your father in, in America, obviously he's, he's, even though you don't have the letters um, there's, he's still corresponding the letters that, that he does get your, your grandparents are very, there's one in particular where they send photos of themselves looking as if everything is fine, nothing is wrong here, you know, where it almost, you know, as if to prove that we're okay and we're fine, but your father knew that that couldn't be the case. Um, talk, talk a little bit about that. Yes. So that series of photos, my grandmother writes, first she says, I'm going to be sending you the photos. Then she says it, you know, included are the photos. And then the next letter is, what do you mean by saying I'm putting on a face? So clearly my father must have made a comment in his response of indicating that he knew things weren't okay, despite the fact the four photos are fabulous in the sense that they're, they're sitting in the living room, they're reading, they're writing. My grandmother's reaching over to turn on the radio. It's amazing. So quote unquote normal. But my dad I, knew it wasn't normal. I found that very fascinating because, I mean, for 
for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, parents, children want to make sure their parents are doing okay. Parents want to make sure their children are doing okay. But it seemed like up until that point, um, there had been such, there had been such, as you said, ambivalence towards what was going on. And the fact that they were sending these photos to prove that things were fine, you you get the sense that they knew things weren't fine. And they felt so compelled to to send photographic evidence to try and, and you know, make their son feel better. I was very moved by that. Well, I would say also, AJ, for me, I was the same age as my grandmother when she was writing the letters. I was her age when I was having them translated. And our oldest son was the same age as my father at that time. And for me, I had such a visceral reaction. It was so strong, the connection, because I could, I, I could almost feel and imagine, as you say, what it must have been like as a parent, as a mother, sure. writing to your yeah. son. Though I can't imagine writing that last letter. That I can't imagine. Sure. Yeah. Well, no, I, 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 maybe I, I resonated a little bit too. So every Sunday, me and my mom, we call and talk to each other. And sometimes we really don't have anything to say, but right. we've set up like that kind of schedule. And so like, there are a lot of things that really just that, that, that humanize this story so much um, for me personally. Let's, let's talk about your, your father and, and what you, through your research and, and through what you were able to find. So he, he was attempting. So after 1938, obviously it's clear to your grandparents and the world and everybody that things are really bad in Germany. So your father, talk about his attempts to try and get his parents out of Germany. So the one piece of quote proof I have is something called a transmigration voucher. It's actually the first document I came upon in my research. And I remember the wheel turning on my computer and then up popped this transmigration voucher, which is a document that was filed with the Jewish Distribution Committee, uh, which was evidence that my father was had an account and was saving funds to be able to pay for the passage of his parents to come here. I don't know the specific attempts he made and whose door he knocked on. I mean, those are questions, you know, unresolved for me. I'd be so curious to know. My grandmother in her last letter made references to more and more people for my father to try. So I don't know. I can only imagine that he had connections of connections my grandmother was an incredible networker, as was my father, and I believe he must have knocked on many doors. But getting an affidavit, especially in thirty-eight, thirty-nine, became very, very difficult. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. Why was why was it so difficult for uh, at that point in in history? Why was it so difficult for refugees from Germany to to emigrate to America? So first of all, the uh, immigration quotas were decreasing. So the doors were starting to close. That's number one. Secondly, there there was a, um, I can't remember the exact wording, but there was a, um, from Truman, who said something like, you know, uh, we need assurance that, that those coming in will not be a liability. And the words changed from possible to probable or something like that, which sounds like a non-event, but it was a big event. And it meant that people who gave affidavits really had to be clear about how much they were willing to support this person. There was an amount they had to show and they had to basically guarantee that this person would not become you know, a, a public welfare issue. So, so then let's, let's talk about the, the last letter. So it's, it's 1941. Your father's been trying to 
to get his parents to America. They've sent letters by now it's clearly indicating that they're they're desperate. They need they're 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 trying to figure out ways to get out of the country. Tell the story about what's in that last letter and then the context around it. So in that last letter is my grandmother's plea that says, you are our only hope. You have to get us out. You must get us out. And get us out translated into whether it's going through Lisbon or going to Cuba. It was whatever works, but it's all on you. And clearly you have been there long enough, you, her son, my father, you have been in America long enough. You can make this happen. All our hopes are on you. I believe that my father carried those words with him for a lifetime. I believe none of us who knew him ever knew he held that inside. and. I do think that is the essence of his attempt at the age of 86. A man who is uh, the rabbi of the synagogue I grew up in and knew my father well. He, he wasn't the rabbi when I, when I grew up at the synagogue, uh, Rabbi David Stern, wonderful. And he said to me, he said, you know, what makes your book different is that with survivors, we want to say, add a boy, add a girl. You know, you made a life for yourself. You did it. You got there. And he said, what you talk about is surviving the surviving every day. And I really believe that my father, back to your question, he carried the content of that last letter with him every day. And he was surviving the surviving every day until he just couldn't. And so, so that's so powerful. And again, I, I said, I read that last letter a, a few times and you know, you, you, when you're obviously your book is called the last letter. So, you know, this is kind of a, a big buildup in your story and for the reader, from the reader's perspective, when you get to that point in the book, you're like, this is, this is it. This is why this is the guilt that, that your, your father, uh, Rudy, uh, Rudolph, uh, this is the guilt that he had that stayed with him for a lifetime. And, um, again, going back to thinking, you know, imagining yourself in a situation like that, you know, imagining, I imagined, what if I got this letter from my parents and I couldn't help them? How would I, you know, how would the rest of my life, how would that be? And so I thought that was so powerful. Uh, tell me a little bit about your reaction when you read that letter for the first time. Uh, so the translation of that letter was what I call my first emotional punch in the gut in my process. It was August 31st, 2009. It's good to keep a journal. <laughs> I was keeping a journal, unbeknownst to me, there'd be a book. And I was beginning to have the letters translated. Uh, Andy, who was the mentor and, and dear friend of a friend of mine, was the one translating them, born in Germany, but had lived in this country many years. So this is 2009. He called me on a good old fashioned landline and said, so I've got the translation of the last letter. I wanted the last letter translated after the first few letters were translated. I was, you know, like a kid who can't wait to open a present. I, I, I really was eager to have the last letter translated. I didn't want to wait through all the others. So he calls and he says, I'm ready to talk, you know, to tell you what it says. So I take out a pad of paper and I start to write down verbatim what he's saying to me. I end up in a complete puddle of tears, complete puddle of tears. And I trek downstairs where my husband and son are, are watching uh, 
the Yankees versus Baltimore Orioles in Baltimore. They look up and see my face. They pause the baseball game. And uh, I proceed through my bleary-eyed vision to read my scribbled notes of what is in that letter. They give me a hug. I go upstairs. I'm just so spent. And all I want to do is crawl into bed. I crawl into bed with a book that is called uh, The Chronicle of the Lutz Ghetto, which is the ghetto my grandparents were in. And uh, it's a very thick book. Uh, normally, I would, a book like that, uh, I would look at the index, look at the table of contents, look at the pictures, read a few bits and pieces. But this was a, a daily diary of the ghetto my grandparents were in. And I started on page one, paragraph one. And page one, paragraph one was a note from the editors of how did, how did this diary come together? And it talks about the weather first. It talks about mundane things that happened and then anything big that happened that day. And they pick a day and it happens to be at the end of that paragraph, they mentioned my grandmother who committed suicide that day. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God, between the translation of the last letter and this. So when you, you got the translation of, of uh, this letter, did you immediately tell others what it said? Were you able to talk about it? What, what was your process for sharing that with your family? So yes, I did. I shared that with um, kind of my inner circle of, of, of people who were connected with me in this process, uh, a few dear friends, uh, as well as with my brother and sister. And, and of course, we have two sons, my, my other son as well. And it just felt so clear to me what my father had been carrying. And, and the last letter also, uh, it, in terms of the title of the book, uh, there's a, it also refers to the last letter my father wrote to us, his children. So my father wrote a letter that he kept with his will. He called, uh, this is called an ethical will, a letter like this. It's in the Jewish religion, uh, there's something known as the ethical will, which is uh, uh, your requests, your regrets, etc. And in this letter to us, his children, my father writes, the hardest thing I ever did was leave Germany. And I ask that you in your lives never forget what we call yard site, the Memorial Day, when somebody passed away, that you never forget the yard site of your grandparents. And I took that very literally. And I, I light those, I light a, a candle uh, on the appropriate date for each of them every year. Well, I, I guess one, that's amazing. I guess we should uh, then continue to talk about, you know, after the, the, the last letter, what happened to your grandparents so, so the, this last letter is, what date is this, this last letter written? October 15th, 1941. So, so tell us what happens after this date to your grandparents. So on October 19th, there was a deportation from Frankfurt to the Wutsch ghetto. It's spelled L-O-D-Z and pronounced Wutsch, um, to the Wutsch ghetto in Poland. And on that day, so I've read accounts and I actually had the good fortune of knowing uh, an expert, uh, Monica Kingreen, an expert on the deportations. Um, and they basically rounded up the Jews in Frankfurt, marched them down the street, said all they could carry was a, a suitcase of a handful of belongings. They marched them through the streets you know, roused them in the middle of the night, marched them through the streets and took them to a place called the Grossmarkthalle, which is basically, that's, that means um, big marketplace. It's where the, it was the wholesale produce big market. They were held there in um, this space. I've actually visited the space. It's now a memorial. 
They had to give up their belongings. They had to be uh, searched. And they were held there in awful conditions until they were put on the train to go to to which. And I have to say, being in that space was also, I had more of an emotional reaction than I expected uh, being in that space. It's You're untouched. talking about being at the memorial? Uh, at the memorial, because it is an untouched, basically bare wall, peel, you know, awful produce hall. It hasn't been touched. It's actually on the premises of where the European Central Bank is in Frankfurt. So it's kind of underground a bit. Uh, you have to walk under to get there. And it's, I can only imagine the conditions that they were held in. Um, but I bet my grandmother kept her fur. As I learned from a survivor of that ghetto who became part of our family, Salomea, uh, Cape, Dr. Salome Cape. I found her in my research. Uh, we traveled to that, uh, to the back to the town of Wuch. And she said at the age of 14, she was in that ghetto. And she said, I remember when the German Jews came in with their furs looking down on us. And it was only a matter of, I'm sure, days before those furs were given up and traded and gone. Now, after, so talk a little bit about then your father and how he found out what, what happened to, to his parents. So he somehow found out that they both died in this ghetto in, at some point, uh, before September, 1942, because there is a, a small obituary in a German Jewish newspaper that was published here in New York called the Aufbau. It still exists, actually. And there was an obituary. So either my father placed that obituary or my grandmother's brother had successfully immigrated here with his wife. One of the two of them miraculously found out between when my grandparents passed away, when they died to uh, September, that that had occurred. I will never know how they, how they got that news. I think that's pretty quickly. My grandmother died in May and my father never knew when my grandfather died. He assumed he must have died before my grandmother or else she wouldn't have committed suicide. So my grandfather, I did do the research and found out he died in uh, on February 22nd, ostensibly of uh, malnutrition. That's what the report said, but who knows, tuberculosis, who knows what he died of. Now, do you have in your research, were you able to find anything on, on how, you know, how this impacted your father, how he felt when he heard the news? I don't know how he felt when he heard that news. I don't know the answer to that. I do know that he married my mother pretty quickly thereafter, um, which in many ways makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, they got married. Yeah. If he found out in somewhere, let's say just before September of 42, uh, he had just met my mother and they married the following uh, July. So I think that must have been a way for him, like a solve for him in many ways. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and then so your your father um shortly after this so he's been in in america he's been trying you know he he tried to get his 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 parents to germany was not successful um but he still still very much feels like the fight in germany is is his fight so he has been working a, a sales job in america but he actually enlists after um, America joins the war after after Pearl Harbor. Uh, talk a little bit about his enlistment and um, what his job was going to be in in the army. So he enlists, and his employer said, "You know, we could make it so that you don't maybe have to enlist." And he said, "If I don't sign up to fight this, who should?" So he enlists, and mind you, at that point, he's not a citizen. He's not a naturalized citizen. So. After he enlists, he, and I have the article from the Denver Post, he was stationed in Colorado, and uh, he and four other uh, soldiers go to a courthouse and become naturalized citizens. And the judge who officiates at that uh, ceremony says it is against his better judgment to do this, but he's doing it under strict orders. He has no proof that these men in front of him are not spies, but under orders, he will follow through with uh, um, enabling each of them to be naturalized citizens. So he becomes a naturalized citizen, and it is as a naturalized citizen and a member of the American army that in 1945, he goes back to Germany. He goes back to Frankfurt and he's part of Patton's uh, army. And, and he was amazingly, too, he, he was, he was, he was too, what I thought before he shipped off, he was a member of um, what's known as the Ritchie boys, which was the Ritchie boys, very, yes. very talented German uh, Germans who emigrated away from Germany that, that the American government thought could be a real benefit to translating interrogations of, of collecting intelligence. Uh, I was actually really excited to read that because I remember watching a 60 minute segment about the, the Richie boys. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that is, that's so incredible. And I bet, you know, all, I remember thinking all of these people must be so proud to be part of, of this, this group. So your, your father was, uh, one of the the Richie boys, although you write that he didn't he didn't talk about that so much. He didn't. You know, it's so interesting. He was a Richie boy. He was trained in how to write leaflets that ultimately would be dropped from from planes to German citizens who encouraged them to you know the war was ending. He was trained in how to make radio announcements. My dad had an incredibly booming, wonderful radio voice, actually. And he writes about being a Richie boy was like, quote unquote, being home again. Why? Because he was with all of these other German Jewish soldiers and other nationalities. And there were some famous ones. It was Klaus Mann and and others who were Richie boys. I believe that my father didn't talk about it much because in some ways, the Ritchie boys, almost like you just said, they were heroes in a way. And I think my father, again, in this surviving the surviving, might have struggled with that notion of being somehow uh, viewed as as heroic. That's my hypothesis. I don't know. But he goes back 
to Germany. He goes back to Frankfurt before going to the, the participating in the liberation of Buchenwald. He gets to the home where he grew up, where he spent 19 years. He has his hand on the doorknob to go in and the top has been bombed out and he can't go any further. Understandably. He I thought that was that. another very powerful moment. Another moment where I imagine, you know, you've been away from your home for like your home where you grew up. You've been away for almost 10 years at this point. And so your father has returned to Germany now as an American soldier and he's standing at his childhood home where all of his memories uh, with his parents and, and his friends and his community, you know, all these memories racing through his mind. And I just thought, I think this, I mean, this, this is, this is one of those moments where I was like, this is an incredible story because to be standing, to be that person uh, that is standing there as uh, now a liberator, I just thought that was so, so moving what did your father see when he returned to Frankfurt in 1945? He saw bombed out buildings. He saw stadiums that the, the, the soccer stadium was bombed out. Um, he saw the synagogue. He went to two different synagogues, but he largely went, mostly went to the reform synagogue and that synagogue had been used as a warehouse for armaments by the Nazis. So it had been desecrated and was just in horrible shape. He saw streets that were, you know, just filled with, with wreckage. I can't imagine. He went back to his, his school that he attended. And again, much of it was in shambles. And I remember he writes, uh, my father writes about wondering what happened to various of his classmates. Where were they today? I don't know how he did that. It, even for me, I went back and went through those residences. I went to that school that he went to that's been rebuilt. I went to the synagogue that's been rebuilt. And wow, that was incredibly uh, emotional for me. But for, as you said, for my dad, how did he do that? And then he goes on to Buchenwald and participates in the liberation where under the orders of Patton, they walk the citizens of Weimar, the, na the town that Buchenwald is in, they walk the citizens through the camp with the dead bodies stacked and the, oh my gosh, he, he, they walk them through and show them what they claimed they didn't know was happening in their own backyard. You know, lampshades made of human skin and how did my dad do that? Yeah, I uh, uh, I was I was so I was so fascinated to to learn that that your father was there at the liberation of of, of Buchenwald, and um, you you talk about how I mean you, as you just said the the citizens of the town were were paraded through to to bear witness to all these the horrible things, and you you also talk about how. Later on in life, your father, I think it was, uh, he was at a, a Holocaust Memorial Museum and he saw footage of himself parading all of those citizens through there, which I thought was incredible. How did, so the concentration camp liberation itself, uh, how did, how did that stick with your father? What, you know, what, what were his feelings? I imagine on one hand, he was, he was proud to be a liberator, but on the other hand, just unspeakable, um, terrible sights that, that he witnessed. How did this experience stick with your father? So I, I don't know for sure. I can say that, again, that must have been part of what he continually carried with him. We had pictures in a photo album that he had put together. And this photo album was tucked in between our family photo albums. And this particular album had pictures from the liberation. 
I remember as a little girl sitting on the floor of the den going through that album and asking questions. My father was not one to talk a lot about it, uh, his experiences in the war until after he had his heart surgery, actually. But growing up, if asked a question, he would answer, but it's not like he spoke about it a lot. But these pictures, I remember asking about them and, you know, they were part of his being a soldier and uh, and his duties, so to speak. I'm sure at the time when you asked, you know, a girl asking that question in his mind, I I just wondered what when the gears are turning and they're like, how how can I possibly answer this? You know, like you said, he probably kept a lot inside. And to explain that still, I mean, for anybody still to this day yeah. to explain it. And I, I, can't, I imagine very difficult for him. And I can't imagine his experience uh, of two things. One is late at night, one night, my dad used to read Time magazine uh, and he'd read it often before he went to sleep at night. And one night he's reading Time magazine and there he sees a picture of himself at the liberation of Buchenwald, which he didn't even know somebody was documenting at the time. And then years later, in the early 90s, when the U.S. Holocaust Museum in in D.C. opened, he went there and, you know, the exhibition moves from the top floor to the first floor. On the first floor is the liberation. When he got to that floor, he sees himself in a videotape, as you said, participating in that. And what's incredible is that there's a picture of my father pointing to himself in the picture of the liberation. And he has a big smile on his face. He's pointing to himself, has a big smile on his face. And a a life-size picture, a life-size version of that picture is hanging in the Dallas Holocaust Museum. And I always feel like when I see that, my father smiling, pointing to himself at the liberation, it is the ultimate in surviving the surviving. Like, how does he do that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just, and I mean, I think any, anybody looking, well, let me get to that in a second, actually. Uh, I'm going to come back to something, but let's just, let's finish with your father's time in, in Germany. Now he, so he, after he, he participated in the liberation of, of, of Buchenwald, he's in Germany and he really feels a lot of anger towards Germans at the beginning. Talk a little bit about that and, and why why he felt that anger. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think at the beginning, he felt like every German was responsible. Where were they on X and Y and Z day that such horrible things happened right next door to them, right under their eyes in all the communities all over Germany? Then in 1945, after the liberation of Buchenwald, he is in charge of a unit of soldiers stationed in Marburg to establish a free press. Now, there were many of these units all across cities and towns in Germany and elsewhere to establish, quote, a free press. And that meant a new newspaper that had freedom of speech But my father, who knew nothing, by the way, about the newspaper industry, had to hire a publisher, an editor, and staff. And he was interviewing Germans in the town of Marburg. And the people who were, quote unquote, working for this army unit, you know, the cooks and the cleaners and everybody else, they were all German. And my father writes about how he, in that process of interviewing people, He believed there was no such thing as what we call collective guilt, meaning all are guilty. He actually says, I learned that these are individuals and he was able to see them as individuals. And he was able to go back to Germany. Oh gosh, I I think he and my mother went back uh, three or four times, but you know, There's a great quote by uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who says, some are guilty, all are responsible. And that's a very different take. And I believe that my father would have agreed with, but not guilty. 
and their children are not guilty. Ellie, Ellie Wiesel talks about that, that only the guilty are guilty. Their children are not guilty. Yeah, I thought that was very powerful uh, as well, that I, I, because I could understand that completely to be, to be so, you know, upset at, at all of these people who, who just kind of stood by as, you know, a, a whole, you know, their friends and neighbors as they were rounded up and, and, and carted away by the Nazis. Well, let's, let's, and let's talk about your father's post-war life back in America. And from, so from the, the story that, that you've told about your father and, and his experiences in the war, uh, I think, I think just about anybody would say your, your father was a hero. He, I mean, Mm. he, he was an American soldier who was an immigrant from Germany, a Jewish immigrant who decides that, you know, like you said, this is his fight goes back to fight Hitler and, and the Nazis and participates in these liberations and, and all these incredible experiences. And so outwardly, you know, as we see somebody like that and we're like, my gosh, like this is a hero. This is somebody who, who is, you know, the, the, the archetype of, you know, what it means to, uh, to fight evil. But as you say, your father didn't, he didn't view himself like that. Talk a little bit about kind of how, how he viewed himself in, in this post-war life and and how that over the years how that kind of contributed to 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 his depression and then then ultimately the attempt on his life so you know i'll obviously i'll I'll never know exactly how he viewed himself i do know that like you know as i said before I, i don't think he wanted to be viewed as a hero and i until the age of 75 he really didn't talk about it very much after the age of 75, my father was out there on the speaking circuit. He spoke to the Texas state legislature. He talked to church gatherings, synagogues. He would be at Holocaust memorials. And he really felt compelled to tell his story. And I think- Do you think, think that was like, I'm sorry. Well, I was going to no, say, no. do you think maybe that was, do you think maybe that was like a therapy for him that he had kept it inside? Uh, for for so long? I think maybe it was, yes, to answer your question, it it well could have been. And I think that triple bypass surgery, that brush with his own mortality, and the realization that if he doesn't tell the story, who will? And he is of a generation. And sadly, you know, we're coming to the end of that generation of people who really did live during that time. And I think he realized having his voice out there was really important. And he would speak, I, I videotaped him once. He would, he was a docent at the Holocaust Museum in Dallas, as I mentioned, and he would uh, speak to eighth graders, you know, and take their questions and be able to connect with them. And I think he reached a point of understanding if I don't do this, who will? Yeah. What do you What do you think that with with your father and how he dealt with his? I mean, of course, we don't know if you know he he felt. We don't know for sure because he didn't say that he felt traumatized, but he must have been after seeing all of that. You know, what do you what do you think your father's story? tells us about how we deal with trauma, especially how, how people returning from those types of situations deal with trauma? I think when the trauma is not spoken about, I think it takes on even more power. And Carl Jung says, you know, it's not, it's not the outward conflicts or challenges that we hear or know about from our parents that have impact on us. It's the unspoken ones. And I think in my father's case, 
again, it was in the air in our house. It wasn't really spoken about. So these notions of how did my father feel about things, I don't really know. Um, I do believe that there is such a thing as multi-generational trauma and that it is passed down, that it's somehow in the, in the genes almost, so to speak. And as I started my journey and as it evolved into a book, I had the hope of diluting the multi-generational trauma, uh, diluting it, frankly, for myself and also for our sons. And I really hope that by being out there with it, by being giving voice to it, by talking about it, it has had that impact. Uh, I believe it has actually in talking to our sons. And uh, well, talk talk a little bit about then. So you started writing this in two thousand nine. Talk about how you have changed personally after going through this this journey of of understanding about your father. How, how has this experience changed you? So one, it's made me sad that I, I really didn't know what was so buried underneath for my father. Um, that's one piece. Another piece is it makes me ultra sensitive to when I see families separated, so in today's world, uh, when I saw those particularly early pictures during uh, of the Ukraine war, and we saw children, you know, with their noses swished against the bus windows and the parents outside, I have a very strong visceral reaction to seeing the families separated. I'm much more sensitive when I hear international reporting about uh, war zones and and the impact and the children. I, I get very focused on the children and what that is going to mean for the future generations. That's, that's great. That's, that's amazing. Well, on that same topic here, why do you think this story is important? I think this story is important for a number of reasons. In addition to the multi-generational trauma aspect, I really want to relay to folks that anybody can go out and learn more about their family background. I am not a historian or scholar, and I, I was able to do this work. And I always want to say to folks, you know, if there's someone in your life that you want to know more about, now's the time. They're not going to be on the planet as long as you want, probably. And ask the questions now. And by the way, if they've passed on, Two feet in the internet and a little determination goes a very long way. So that's that's sort of the second reason I believe it's important. And the third is that I have to say, I believe my book is a cautionary tale of sorts. If we look at today's world, believe me, I didn't think about this uh, oh, in 2009. But if we look at today's world, it's it's unbelievable some of the parallels. So there was an America First Committee back in the 1930s, as we have today. There were people in high cabinet positions, Breckenridge Long, Cordell Hall, they were the uh, Secretary of State and Assistant Secretary of State. They were making sure those immigration quotas became lower and lower. It's kind of uncanny when we look at our world today. Likewise, as I mentioned before, rights were sort of insidiously, you know, chipped away at one by one. And when we think about today's world, whether it's, I mean, what comes to mind most recently and um, strongly is voting rights. You know, that's just one way to start to chip away a little bit, a little bit here, a little bit there. So I view my book as a cautionary tale and of saying, let's keep our eyes open. Let's be aware. Oh, that's, I love that answer. Well, Karen, uh, this has been such an incredible interview. Uh, and I'm so glad that you took some time to 
uh, to talk with me and, and talk with us uh, about your book, um, which again, I really enjoyed and, and was really moved by. Where can, uh, where can folks find you if they want to either read a little bit more about your book or they want to get in touch with you? Where, where can people, are you on social media? I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. And again, my name is Karen Baum Gordon, and I have a website called KarenBaumGordon.com. So that's an easy one to remember. Uh, yeah. And that's where they can find out more about me and, and more speaking events coming up, uh, et cetera. And Perfect. I'm very grateful, AJ, for this opportunity, for, for your questions, for the dialogue, for the conversation. Um, Thank you so much, oh, really. Thank you. Now, pleasure was all mine. Great. Well, Karen Baum Gordon, her her new book, The Last Letter: A Father's Struggle, A Daughter's Quest, and the Long Shadow of the Holocaust. Go out and buy it. Go to your library and check it out. It's a story that is is really worth reading and and worth being told. And uh, Karen, thank you again. Thank you. Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.